I'm Angela Kenneke, a veteran journalist with 30 years in television news and an investigative reporter. But for the purpose of this podcast, I'm just a mom trying to find my way after the loss of a child in the opioid epidemic. I am grieving out loud, using my platform on TV and on social media to try to stop the stigma of addiction and get more people into treatment so that no other family has to go through the devastation that I and my family have experienced at the loss of our 21-year-old Emily. Today, Sarah Crosby joins me. She is a social worker and the mother of a son who is in recovery from addiction. Thank you for being here today, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Let's start off by talking a little bit about your background. How many kids do you have? My husband and I have twin boys who will be 30 at the end of June, unbelievable as that feels to me, and we have a daughter. So three kids. Um, Our daughter is the youngest. She she is 26, Um, and we've lived in Sioux Falls for 20 years now. I think it's interesting that your boys are twins. There's a lot we can probably dive into there when it comes to substance use. Did all of did both of your boys experiment with this? Did you have an issue in the teen years? Which son and when did it start? That is such a good question, um, and it is such a complex issue. But um, they are fraternal twins, um, and only one of them suffers from addiction. Uh, the other one was able to somehow stay away from that. In fact, uh, it was quite funny. He uh, Later in life, he had told me that um, even though he had, they both had very strict curfews, he that he had, wasn't doing anything probably until the summer of his senior year when he started maybe going to parties or whatever. So, um, but his brother... Um, was um, they're just they're wired so differently, um, and they're both very sensitive. I would call um, his brother was smaller from at birth. He was very colicky at, at like a month old, and um, just very sensitive, noise sensitive, food sensitive, um, just felt the world very, very, very intensely. So right from the start, they were very different. They're they're different in size. They're different in appearance. And um, and I I think that that has a lot to do with it um, and the differences and how they reacted and what they oh took from the world. Um, how they I guess the better um, word is their perception of the world around them how they reacted and um, and how they acted toward the things that came at them. That's really interesting you say that about the sensitivity because Emily was a colicky, high-needs, fussy baby. She was very sensitive to textures like the socks and foods and tastes, and she was so sensitive to other people and what they were feeling. I just think sometimes these kids that end up using substances have felt the world uh, and it's so harsh and it's so hard on them and their hearts that they maybe turn to these things. There may be something to that. I think definitely. Um, I've been doing a lot of reading of Gabar um, 
Matei is his name, and um, he he talks a lot about this in his work and how um, he doesn't believe that addiction itself is genetic, that we don't inherit the disease of addiction, that but what we do um, genetically inherit. Uh, is our level of sensitivity, our intuitiveness, and how we then perceive the world around us. And he says that um, instead of asking why the addiction, we should be asking why the pain. And that we, I love that. That is that is fantastic. I think so too. And I think that um, I I know so much more now. Um, than I knew when um, my sons were growing up. Uh, they, and I wish, I, I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? <laughs> well, right. I mean, I think we can all look back, and especially when you lose a child, as I have, I mean, it's so easy to go back and question, and why didn't I know this, or why didn't I know that? But, but we couldn't know what we couldn't know, right? And, but it is hard, and I think these personality traits, and also the other thing we probably want to touch on is the artistic ability, because I think an artist's brain, whether that be a performer, whether they're an actor or a musician, or they're into visual arts or a, a writer, whatever it might be, I think it's, that brain is also wired very differently. I mean, we could look in history at all the famous and talented musicians and painters who also had mental illness and addiction issues. So accurate. I think the sensitivity um, is what drives artists. I started out as an actress in this world with a BFA in performing arts and was an actress in New York for almost a decade. And really what pushed me toward that was my great highly sensitive reaction to the world around me and my uh, it, it enabled me to get outside of myself and be someone else and as i got healthier as a person and more comfortable in my own skin i figured out that what i really enjoyed doing was studying human behavior and what motivated us to do what we do and that translated well to um, social work. And as far as my son goes, he uh, is a visual artist. He, he hasn't been practicing for a while, but he um, is very um, into, he was a, an amazing potter when he lived here in Sioux Falls when he was going through high school. And in college, he majored in environmental science and got his degree in that at Evergreen State in Olympia, Washington, which was a great place for a highly sensitive person with dyslexia um, to go to school because it was it, the programs there are all um, experiential, so you get up and do. Um, he found his way into uh, the food industry and became a chef, which is also highly creative and is fabulous at it. Unfortunately, the restaurant business is not a very healthy place for people with addiction. Right, because there's so much substance use that goes on. It's part of the, almost the culture. The hours are late and people are often drinking afterwards mm -hmm. or partying in other ways. Uh, just part of that whole thing with the restaurant business. But let's start by talking about when his first use was. When did he start and when did you realize that this was happening? When he was a sophomore in high school, I caught him smoking pot. And I thought I had done everything right. Um, I 
Um, tried really hard to keep his twin out of it, although I was so angry that I demanded that while um, Cam was at a cross-country meet out of town, I demanded that his twin go in his room and search for his stash, which was, in hindsight, just an awful thing to do to Ian. Um, But... um, we thought we did everything right. Um, that um, nipping it in the bud, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, I thought yeah. I did that with Emily too. Nipping it in the bud, uh, reacting right away, not condoning it, not saying it's okay as a teenager for you to smoke pot with an undeveloped brain, and this isn't a good way for you to go. And and I feel like a lot of parents do condone pot smoking. A lot of parents even mm-hmm. smoke uh, weed with their kids. So, we didn't condone that in our house. I reacted. Maybe I even overreacted. But I thought at the time I was I was doing right by her. I felt exactly the same way. Um, I, I I probably did overreact. I um, and then being a social worker, being a psychotherapist, it's like ah, the shrink needs a shrink. You know what am I doing? And is this now it's my kid, so I've got to put my money where my mouth is and and figure out what to do here. Um, we, I did have him evaluated, um, and it was like, he was pre-addicted or I'm not sure what. (laughs) I had the same thing, a psychological evaluation on Emily when she was about 15 and it said, you know, Mm -hmm. prone to substance abuse and addiction disorders. So I, and personality disorders, I, I mean, I was really scared and I have to say, I took her to counselor after counselor and she was even an outpatient treatment program about 16, 17, and got kicked out. I mean, there were so many roads that I traveled on to try between discipline and all of these different things, and nothing worked. It's hard to know um, exactly what to do. Um, Cam was um, – he was fairly compliant. Uh, he – I think it, it has to do with a need – to be accepted and loved and um, attached. Um, and so that wasn't so much a problem. In fact, we grounded him. I mean, he was grounded most of his sophomore and junior year of high school. And uh, Emily there was, was about to get her car back finally, and then she did something like the day before she was going to get her car back that we'd taken away. Right, right. Yes, that sounds very familiar. But um, he we still had a relationship with him um he went to he was in therapy he was in a pre-treatment group um i also drug tested him randomly like i would pick him up after school and just say we're going to sanford for a drug test sort of thing and that for some reason kept him uh sober um through most of high school, although he'll say he had no friends um, because he wasn't using and he uh, had a very strict curfew. And so he really didn't have many people to hang out with. He's told me that. But as far as uh, I wanted to back up just a second um, and talk a little bit about about that, more about that sensitivity, Um, because what I find interesting, uh, Dr. Matei says that um, how not everybody who is traumatized in childhood becomes um, or or has a problem with addiction, but everyone with addiction has trauma. 
And I, I found that really interesting. And what he means by trauma is not like necessarily extreme trauma where there's child abuse or your parents die or you're an orphan or you grow up in poverty. What he what he's talking about as well, because trauma is on a continuum, um, the highly sensitive person can experience trauma just in the anxiety that they feel from their parents. And so I think back and I think, ah, you know, it was a really difficult time. We were both very young in our careers, and my husband was gone a lot working, and I was working full-time, and I had twins, and we had nobody, like no relatives anywhere nearby. We lived in a city. We lived in Chicago. And, and yeah, I look back and I go, he maybe he wasn't colic. Maybe he was just picking up on my extreme weariness and anxiety because he was that sensitive. You know, you may be right. I think people are always looking. So there's a, another side to this coin. People are always looking. I feel, what did you do wrong as a mother? Or, or did you cause this in some way? Because I want to believe this can't happen to my child. I think there's a little bit of that that goes on out there because I think a lot of people said, well, was, was Emily sexually abused? Did something happen to her? And I can't think of anything other than I did go through a divorce with her dad, and that was traumatic. It was traumatic for me. It was traumatic for her dad, and it was traumatic for her. And she had severe separation anxiety when she would have to go stay with her dad and be away from me because she, I feel like she was so attached to me. I always called her my Velcro baby. And so that could have been enough in itself to cause the trauma in her young brain. But yet staying in a relationship that was unhealthy would have also caused trauma. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how you can escape life without some kind of trauma. Mm-hmm. And I think you are an educated. I mean, both of our kids were both highly educated. We both had children that had every opportunity and came from good homes, so to speak. Yet they both started using marijuana and other drugs at a very young age and progressed on to even harder drugs, which nobody can really understand exactly why this happens. Well, I think um, it's it's certainly incredibly complex, and there are many theories out there. Um, I do think that um, it happens with particularly highly sensitive people who are prone to anxiety and or depression. Um, and Cameron certainly has uh, our generational anxiety. Um, there are, there's a lot of anxiety um, that runs through my family. And for a person who has high anxiety, um, I think that particularly opioids become like a hug for them. I've heard that. I've heard that description that it's like a hug from Jesus. That's actually what one opioid user said in the New York Times, and I thought that was such yeah, eye-opening way to describe it. Um, uh, Mate talks a lot about um, attachment, the, the necessary things we have um, for our survival, and one is attachment, and one is our relationship with... Um, with ourself, our authenticity. And what will happen is oftentimes because of our, our need for attachment, what we experience as, as highly sensitive people, like when we're in trouble or when we get angry or whatever, 
the reaction from the adults in your life can create a perspective for us when we're young that in order to stay attached, I have to be a certain way. And then when you become that certain way, you lose your authenticity. You you detach from who you really are in order to stay attached because if you're not attached, you don't survive, basically. So all of those are survival instincts that go awry. And I think most people deal with that. Um, I think that certainly I did and spent a lot of time in therapy growing up um, trying to figure out where my mother ended and where I began sort of thing, like what is hers and what is mine, and and spending years finding my authenticity again. Can you tell me a little bit about the progression of Cam's use? Yeah. Uh, I will as best as I know. Um, I'm really – I try really hard to tell my story and not his because I don't actually know – his. Um, you mean as an adult. So you know yeah. in high school, you sort of yeah. reined him in. Uh-huh. You, he didn't have a lot of right. friends. But then when he got out of high school and went away to college, what? I'm sure you were hopeful that, mm-hmm. you know, he was going to yeah. find the right road for him. Well, his is a pretty classic story. He broke his nose when he was in high school. His sen- I think it was his senior year. And he had to have surgery on it. And he they gave us Percocet. After after the surgery, and we gave him. We had it. I wasn't. I I was smart enough to know not to just hand a bottle of thirty Percocet over to my kid. But um, I did. So we were we were giving them to him as prescribed. But I I remember thinking, wow, you know, I have never needed maybe one, if that, maybe. You know, Motrin is the most I would ever use, and that. But he, for however long it was, the two weeks worth that he had, he went through every single one. Kept complaining of pain. Um, He did share with me later that after the first Percocet, he felt like he had hit Nirvana. It was the first time he hadn't felt anxious, and he was addicted at that moment. Wow. I mean, I, (laughs) I think that. Our stories are so similar because I don't know for sure because I never did know that Emily was using opioids. I knew about marijuana and I knew about benzos, but she had also broken her nose and had surgery in 2017. And I really think that that may be, but I don't know for sure the the first time that she started using Mm -hmm. opioids was after that, but I don't know. And she would have been you know, 19, 20 years old, 19. Right. And Cam was probably 17. He turned 18 right after they graduated. They have son, they have June birthdays. So he went, I, I, I know that he worked all that summer. Um, he worked hard and he made quite a bit of money to go off to college with. And that he's, he, his work ethic is just blows my mind. He's one of the hardest working people I know. So he went off to college, and he was 1,200 miles away. And I didn't really know what he was doing. I mean, you know, I know Evergreen was, you know, a very granola college that was very, you know, developed in the 70s, so it was very hippie and what have you. But their programming was just perfect for Cam, and I thought he would just flourish there. Um, I didn't really worry about him much until um, 
down the road. And he was getting, they don't have grades there, but he would get these reports from all of his professors that... No grades, that is granola. (laughs) It was very granola. (laughs) Anyway, uh, so, but his reports were just stellar and he was learning and just really enjoying the process of learning. He, He seemed to have friends. Um, and I think the progression was, um, well, the opioids continued and, in um, pill form? In mm-hmm. pill form, in as far as you know. pill form, mm-hmm. as far as I know. And then also add benz- benzodiazepines, benzos to that, which are just nasty. That is a nasty drug, really hard to And we're not talking a of. lot about that in our culture right now. We're talking no. a lot about opioids, but... Benzos are were a huge problem for Emily, and benzos are really hard to. Um, they're really hard to uh, detox from because you can die detoxing from benzos. I mean, you get plenty sick from opioids, but benzos you can go into all sorts of seizures, and I mean, it's scary business. Um, in fact, I think that uh, the hardest thing in Cam's recovery, from what I can tell, has been the benzos even more than the opioids. At what point did you know that he had progressed? I mean, that he had been using more drugs and eventually he progressed to heroin? Oh, gosh. Um, that's you an- got this middle class, you know, white kid, you know, using heroin. And just I think that always shocks people. It, it we're like I always say we're like the poster family for addiction. It's like I'm a social worker. My husband's a physician. We talked. We had family meals. We talked about everything. Very open. In fact, my kids would joke. Well, sometimes it wasn't a joke. They would say, "Okay, enough of the psychobabble now, Mom. We don't have to like." Use feeling words for everything. And, you know, so, I mean, that's how they grew you up. You were a conscious parent. Mm-hmm. That's what I think I it's tried like. to yeah. be, yeah. I, well, of course you were. Yeah. Of course you were. So um, I think that um, what happened was, you know, his, his use escalated. And I don't know if I assume he was doing heroin, maybe smoking. I don't, I don't even know. I mean, he could probably tell more that while he was still in college and his – he was supposed to – both the boys were graduating, and um, Cam decided not to walk with his class, that he wanted to stay and take another semester so he could get a B.S., a Bachelor in Science instead of a Bachelor of Arts. It seemed more legitimate for what he wanted to do. Um, and we were fine with that. Now, what had been happening was desperate calls for money, but he – like a lot of this goes along with just the disease of addiction, really good at telling tales and telling me particularly what I needed to hear. And in the my intuition was saying there is something very wrong here. But I was so afraid that if we didn't give him money that he would get into even bigger trouble. Um, classic enabling. I, my husband and I would argue about – giving him more money. Our marriage was, I wouldn't say it was ever on the rocks, but boy, we were not getting along. I mean, it was me enabling and my husband just... And he had a different idea. He thought you shouldn't give him money. Right. And kind of let him deal with the consequences on his own. Right. But I also knew that he would get dope sick. And um, so he would 
try to chase that dope sick away. I mean, that's what happens is that you end up stealing and breaking the law in order to get drugs to keep from being dope sick. And I, so in the back of my head, I knew that was going on, but I wouldn't admit it to myself. I was in such denial about it. But it's easy to say in hindsight, in the back of your head, you knew it was going on, but you didn't realize what he was using or how much he was using. I didn't know it was as Right. I didn't know it was as bad. Um, Nobody told us. Nobody from the college said anything. Um, His friends, his roommates, his girlfriend at the time, um, nobody ever said anything to us. And I had a very similar experience with Emily. Nobody ever, I mean, nobody ever told me that she was using or what she was using, none of the friends she was hanging around or the relationship, the boyfriend she was with. I find that really hard to stomach now that uh, she died from this because if somebody would have come up and said, hey, she's using heroin. I had a cousin who was a heroin addict back in the 90s in L.A., and I was always terrified of that. Her husband actually died from an overdose before all these people were dying from overdoses. And so I would have leaped into action even sooner. But it's also hard with an adult child because how do you force them? I mean, every time I would confront her when I suspected things and I didn't know what was going on, you know, you get so much denial and anger and you push them away, it seems like. Well, and and he was 1,200 miles away. So it was really easy to tell me what I wanted to hear. Um, And it did progress. Uh, We finally, uh, that fall, I think it was must have been 2011, November of 2011. I was driving home from um, a meeting um, down in Missouri, and I got a hysterical phone call from him um, and um, something about somebody ODing, and he he had tried to not take anything all day, and, I mean, just totally out of control. And I'm in I-29 in the dark at 1030 at night. I can't do anything. But the feeling back then, um, and I'm so glad I have evolved since then, but the feeling back then is one, I mean, you just, you're a parent, you're a mom, and you want to fix it. And the, I, I was completely in absolutely helpless at that moment. And I begged him to just go to where his roommate was working and wait for his roommate to get off work and that I was going to have his dad call him. And he was hysterical that his dad would be so angry at him. And long story short, um, we got him. They had a bed open at Hazelden. I also, I had no idea where to send him. And we got him home. I won't go into the gruesome details, but we did get him home. I never did go out there, did not rescue his things. Those were, like, good things I did, I guess. He was really mad at me, but um, I never went out there to recover his stuff or his car. We just took care of everything long distance. His roommates took a lot of his stuff. Um, But I, I have to say... Hazelton, Hazelden up in Minnesota, um, it saved his life. When we got him, we picked him up at the airport in, in Minneapolis. We got a direct flight for him. I thought he was going to OD on the way up there. I, have, I just I didn't even recognize him. And um, he was pretty compliant, but he was pretty high. And he doesn't remember any of it. Um, and that night, 
uh, we we left him there, and that night we we drove back very late at night, and we called his sister, who is a freshman in, in Washington D.C. at college, and she said, "Why are you so calm? I mean, this is a big deal." And I said, "Because I'm going to sleep really good tonight because I know he's safe." And that five weeks he was at Hazelden, I slept great. I mean, I hadn't realized how anxious I was, how depressed I was, how out of control I felt, how immobilized I had become. Yeah, I think I had seven years of that. I always say I had seven years of uh, worry and being up all night or waking up in the middle of the night and not knowing what to do and trying all these different things and not knowing what the real problem was. And it's just, I don't think it should be this hard to navigate. But it, a lot of people think too, okay, you got him into treatment. Great. End of story. All better. Cured. That was the beginning of the story, actually. Um, he spent a year in Minnesota. Uh, I, I have to say, he's he is the bravest human being I know. I just... I'm so incredibly proud of him. He he did spend five weeks um, inpatient, four months in their halfway house program. He didn't have a car. He had nothing. We had to buy him clothes so he could get released. He had nothing to his name. He'd lost everything. So we did get him some clothes. Um, he bought a bike. He had to get a job. He biked everywhere through the winter in Minneapolis. Um, and then and he, he when he... When he moved out to – and um, he was living with a friend of his from college who was a, a very stable and good friend, and he – but he got very, very depressed. Um, and eventually he ended up going back to this – I want to say the scene of the crime, back to um, where all of this started in Washington State. And the story is long and gruesome from that point on. He 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 did relapse completely. I know that at some point um, IV use was um, involved. We've we've done um, a rapid. I don't know. It was it was a rapid detox of benzodiazepines. I was twelve hundred miles away here. And I hired a nurse to be with him all day long and to take him to and from this clinic. I mean, I should have my head examined. Well, I have. That's <laughs> many times over. But wow, really but scary, awful and things. And didn't you feel like you just wanted to breathe a sigh of relief after he'd you know, gotten out of Hazelden, was spending that year in Minneapolis? At least it seemed like he was clean during that time, mm-hmm. as far as you know. Mm-hmm. And, and for him to go back... To the same, I think the people, places, are things. That's what I always hear in drug court. You know, they can't go back. Well, you know, I'm going to bring up what we a little bit of what we talked about before because it, it connects into that. Again, I, I mean, I am not ever one for bashing anything that works for anyone. So, twelve step is great, and I think that um, that the history of it and what it has done for millions and millions of people is just phenomenal. But it doesn't ask why the pain. And so I think we have a huge problem and a huge disconnect with most of the treatment, addiction treatment in our country. 
um, or the, at least you know, a majority of it, is that we we treat the addiction and the effect of the addiction, but we're not looking at the pain, the root, the root cause, and and there are more and more places now that are dual, what we call dual diagnosis. So they they specifically look at the addiction, yes, but they really address the pain underneath. Um, Cam has found a doctor um, in uh, Washington State so he's who still is there. doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, he's been all over the place. He He spent almost a year in South America traveling, trying to figure out his head and everything else. Um, he has a, a, a girlfriend who he's had for six years now, and she has just been incredible. We love her. And how long has he been in recovery now? I don't even know, really. Um, I, I think probably from everything, from benzos and heroin, um, a minimum of nine, or maybe, I don't know, I'm nine months. Oh, I'm not sure. So yeah, well, benzos been, was still an issue, so I think, for a while. this has been such a long journey for mm-hmm. you and your family. How many years did you, would you say you had to deal with this? Uh, oh, if he started at 15 um, and... 15 years, years right yeah. and i what's so lovely now is that um he he is he's an incredible person he he's his well, depth he right yeah. they all are you know <laughs> um but the depth of his his character um his intuitive nature his writings the, how deep he goes within himself and how much pain he has been in i mean it just it just breaks my heart to think of how much pain he has lived with. and But he's starting to really address that pain and his perspectives. Um, and so we have actual conversations now, and it's like talking to any other adult, actually talking to a very astute um, adult who, um, you know, and he's trying to figure out what's next. I think it's hard. Um it's been hard for the family. Um, that was another question I was going to ask you, the effect on the family, because I feel that when you're dealing with a child who's suffering from addiction, so much of your focus and your concentration goes into that child. And you've I, just like me, you know, you've got other kids mm-hmm. at home who are doing great, who aren't doing these same things, but yet they sort of get cast, not cast aside. I mean, we love mm-hmm. our other kids, but they are not the focal point of the attention. The whole family is all affected by this. Well, I think every relationship has is affected most definitely and yes, I think um uh, especially early on um I there was I had so much preoccupation and was so concerned about saving, you know, saving him and doing for him and making sure and um just being anxious all the time and I know that that affected particularly my our daughter um because she was four years younger and at home during a good deal of this um eight years of it actually um and so um but now what I'm learning is that, you know, we all have stuff. Like I was having a conversation the other day with somebody and, you know, 
I don't look at this as being this is abnormal or normal or right or wrong. This is just life, and we're all human. And I, all we can do is is, and the only control that we have as human beings is how we choose to act and react to the world around us. And my kids are and were loved just as deep as anyone could love their children. But we all learn and we all grow. And I I tell them all and I tell people we all need to take a giant step back and give each other the chance to change and not to project um, our old reactions onto each other, but to really take that moment and pause and make a choice and really hear that person and mindfully take that person in. And I am I no longer believe that it's my job to keep my kids alive. I I um can't do that. I don't have control over whether they live or die. And I ran into a lot of problems and I think a lot of us who spend a lot of time um, chasing our kids' problems, um, believe that you know it's up to us to make them happy, to make sure that they succeed, and to keep them alive. And that was killing me. And so through Smart Recovery, which is a whole other subject, but Smart Recovery is um, an alternative to 12-step program, and it deals with uh, behavioral modification. Uh, um, and uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. And it really looks at the things that you do have control over and changing your beliefs. And it works for the person in recovery, and they have a program that is is great. I run a group on Tuesday nights um, for friends and family. And I'll put some information at the bottom oh, of that this would be podcast great. so if people want to learn more about that group or get involved. And it's great that that's one way for you to also – channel what you've mm-hmm. been through, right? To mm-hmm. deal with it yourself. The one thing I wanted to ask you about was about stigma and shame. Mm-hmm. Yes. I talk a lot about stigma and shame when I go talk to groups of people because I think we as parents all get this. When we have a kid who's gone down the wrong road, you know, people look at us and they're like, what did you do? Did you cause this? Or look at that low life junkie over there, not even, you know, a human being. Mm-hmm. And I think we've, felt, we've both felt that. How have you dealt with that? Okay, so um, Mate talks a lot about this as well. Um, I'm right there with you. Part of the reason why I started speaking out um, as and telling my story is because um, of the shame, and we have to change that. That's a cultural thing. Um, Mate points out that as as you have in terms of every eight minutes, how many people overdose. Well, he puts it in every three weeks, our country has a 9-11 of overdoses. Every three weeks. And we're not talking about it. Because of the shame, you think, right, and the stigma? I right. mean, I think that is it. We've, mm-hmm. For a long time, people have looked at mental health and addiction as something that is you should be able to control, you started it, just stop it. Right. And not as a disease of the brain. Half the population doesn't believe it's a disease. Well, and it's, you know, it is, it's a mental illness caused by traumatic pain. By pain, there's pain and sensitivity underneath that addiction that has changed the brain chemistry. And until we change our society's ways of looking at addiction um, and move from shame and blame and move it to compassion and trauma, then 
nothing will change. We have to look at this issue and this addiction, addiction, mental health, and the epidemic that is before us and in a much broader sense. I always say we have to replace judgment with compassion Mm -hmm. and punishment with treatment. Mm -hmm. We're not doing that. No. Um, People with addiction do not belong in jail. I mean, it just makes the problem. We just add to the pain. And so much of it also, we need a huge societal shift in how we view this and also where we put our money. That is a big, huge problem. But we could talk Mm -hmm. for hours about that. Yes. (laughs) But, I mean, what could you have takeaways? Because there are going to be people listening to this podcast that have either lost children to this, this epidemic, this opioid epidemic, or are dealing with children, and a lot of people not talking about it and covering it up, dealing with children with addiction issues. What kind of advice do you have for other parents? Or looking back even on your own experience, do you wish someone would have told you? I wish I had done more education. Um, It's really easy to Google all this stuff. I mean, it really is easy. Well, I Googled stuff too, but then I would find one thing and that didn't work, and I'd find another thing and I didn't. I mean, Well, I think – Boy, that is such a hard question. I'm not necessarily a fatalist, um, but I do think that um, there – a lot of it ha- is is it's bigger than us. It it has to do with society again. It has to do with what is taught in school. How do these kids feel about themselves? Are we paying attention as a society to the sensitivity? Are we teaching kids the joy and process of living and learning, or are we just teaching them to attest um, to you know the end result? Um, and I. I think that for kids who are highly sensitive, they oftentimes don't fit in that nice little neat box. And again, people need to attach. People want to belong. And and if you oftentimes I when working with teenagers, I find that they change themselves to fit in because it gives them a sense of belonging, but they're really just losing themselves. I, I think we most of us do that, and I don't think I stopped doing that until I hit like 50 years old. So Yeah, <laughs> there's, there's great comfort in uh, hitting above 50. I, I do think like there's a lot of parents that are at the point, you know, where I was, you know, seven years ago, or you were mm-hmm. 15 years ago just struggling and looking for answers. And, and I don't. I have a lot of parents reach out to me and they ask me what to do as if I'm the expert on it. And I always say, you know, if I were the expert on it, my child would still be alive. Mm. But I, I don't always feel like I have really good advice to offer. I think that um, you need to take care of yourself first. That's number one. You need to see a therapist, um, go to a group, talk, talk to people, talk to everyone, Don't let the shame keep you from talking. Um, Advocate for your child within the schools. Um, See what teachers are thinking, how they feel, how is your kid doing. Just really don't be afraid to advocate for them. Don't be afraid to talk to them. And, yes, uh, if they're doing drugs, they're going to lie and pull away and and your relationship will be completely and absolutely on the rocks. I would um, do as much research as possible. And I I would also um, really – 
try to reach out to you know specialists in this area. Um, there are some really, really good therapists. There's some decent groups. And above all, when your kid is you know, still a kid and under your roof, your job is to keep them safe. Um, and as much as is under your control to keep them alive, um, it's a little different when they leave your home and they're adults and you really have no control at all. Um, and and But again, I think you do the best when you take care of yourself first. Your kids tend to um, be better. And I, I think there's a lot to be said with changing the dance with them. Um, and by that, I mean they will pull you in to their circle of um, of of their addicted brain and how it circle talks and how it makes excuses and this and that. And what we all want to do and what I did a ton of was I would jump right into that circle and get caught up in that circle talk and end up arguing and begging and pleading. And that doesn't work. So if you look at changing your behavior and your reactions and, and, your reactions and, and when they reach out to pull you into their dance for you not to take their hand and dance. And if, if you change your reaction, oftentimes what will happen is they have to change the way they're um, relating to you. Either that or they'll just go away completely. But – if you just keep, that's what we call enabling, uh, uh, you know, if that's what you want to call it. But changing the dance is probably the way to go. I want to ask you something now because you shared something with me, and it's a little bit personal. I don't know if you'd want to share it with our listening audience, but you wrote a poem that to me, you I could have written it. I mean, you were speaking to me. It is just, a, I think, a universal thing that parents go through when they're dealing with a child who's suffering from addiction, the, you know, the worry and the fear and the, all of it, you know, it's just a big bundle of mess, right? Um, would you like to share that with us today? Yeah, I think I would. I thank you. shared it with very I, many so people. Ex- but... well, I'm going to share it with a lot of people, but thank you so much. Yes, you're welcome. Thank you guys for listening. Entangled. Anxiety spills through the text on my phone as if it is molten lava reaching out to pour its heat into my veins and wrap itself around my heart. The pulse threatens to strangle my voice and dampen the roots of my soul. I can feel myself being pulled into the vortex of an illness that isn't even mine. Ground slips away from feet that were minutes ago planted firmly, confidently, clearly. The familiar fear turned to anger and then resentment threatens to envelop me in its fist and somehow I wish I could vomit up the scream and the sorrow that were planted deep inside years ago. I am weary. Weary for a different life, for a break from everyone else's lives and hurts and worries and concerns. A place of solace where there is no reason to think or dig around in the pain, the figuring out why we are what we are and how we communicate and feel better and leave the anxiety and fear and sadness and shattered dreams and complexities of communication behind for someone else to deal with. Believing we are all doing the best we can at this moment in time, but somehow it doesn't feel good enough, and I have plumb run out of compassion and kindness, and I have no more to give.
Grow up, I want to scream until I am hoarse. Go live your life and stop intruding on mine. Your anxiety, your fears, your addictive illness are not mine. I hand them back to you. I paid my young adult dues. It was hell, I guarantee. Somehow I survived. I work to have my life. I am certain that I do not want to live it all again through my child. Death is not my answer, but to crawl away and disappear for a moment or two would be swell. How do you balance loving your child and cutting the cord? Every day I cut a little more away, and like the never-ending tide, I get pulled in and out, exhausted from fighting the waves, waiting for the calm between those waves to catch my breath and gain some clarity and strength to fight off the feeling that I must do something, help, fix, in order to feel in control of how my beautiful baby, now a man, will have a life. Oh, so poignant. Thank you so much for doing that. It's beautifully, beautifully written and beautifully read. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. I believe we can all learn from each other as we walk through life, and by sharing our suffering, we can lessen the suffering of others. Until next time, wishing you faith, hope, and courage. To read my blogs and join us in our mission, just go to Emily's Hope at paintingapathtorecovery.org. Also, please rate and review this podcast. Thank you.